Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I have a great conversation with Dr. Johanna Mellis from Ursinus College about her work on the history of sports. This is episode 75 of Untenure Tracks. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on two things, um, one sort of slowly and one um, is sort of ongoing with the podcast, but I'll start with my book, which is like a very, very slow process because I'm trying to sort of take my time and not not burn out um, as academia is, is sort of, you know, wants almost seemingly wants to burn people out, I think. Um, and, and this is something that my chair has been very supportive of me working on very slowly and my dean and stuff like that. So I'm lucky to have their support and kind of taking my time. Um, but the book is te- very tentatively called Changing the Global Game. And it is about international sport during the Cold War. And um, in the book and in my articles, um, what I look at are um, the experiences of, I look at, I focus specifically on Hungary as a case study. And so communist Hungary during the Cold War. And so I look at how Hungarian athletes experienced um, not only the communist system and communist sport, but also international sport during the Cold War. So going to the Olympic Games, how did they navigate the Olympic rules and things like that. Um, and then I look at um, state officials who worked for the communist government, who served as intermediaries between the main sort of general secretary and, and party functionaries who were like at the top of, of sort of the government. And, and these um, sport officials um, sort of were mediators between the government and between the athletes. Um, and then I also look at the International Olympic Committee. And so I look at the International Olympic Committee as sort of an international organization. And then I look at state officials on the national level. And then I look at athletes on sort of the ground level um, and look at how people between these three groups interact and communicate with one another. Um, and, and, and I look at these three groups in part because sport during the Cold War or sports um, during the Cold War are typically viewed as sort of defined by East-West politics, mm-hmm. right? You know, the two sides, they didn't like each other and they never got along. And we have these like major clashes on the field or, for example, I look at Hungary and so there's a major moment in water polo, mm-hmm. which is um, a huge sport in Hungary. And there's a famous game at the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, Australia, between the Soviets and the Hungarians, where it's called the blood and the water match. Um, because the tensions are, are, are really high because it comes on the heel of the 1956 revolution in Hungary, where the Hungarians tried to overthrow the communist state or reform it, depending on sort of who it is you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then the Olympic Games begin about one month after the revolution starts. And so this water polo match is sort of seen as like a, like a scene of like micro tensions mm-hmm. between the Soviets and the Hungarians. And there's a Hungarian athlete that gets punched by a Soviet athlete and he has blood running down his face. That's why it's called blood in the water match. Um, and it, it is a really important match. And there are really important moments during the cold war, such as a space race where you either have, like I said, sort of East versus West politics, or you have 
um, Eastern European countries that are sort of trying to resist the Soviet yoke um, of communist rule. Um, but then my research, I'm building on the work of many other people, um, looks at how, you know, these are the huge flashpoints of the Cold War, but people lived the Cold War every single day and they didn't have these major battles, right? They weren't necessarily thinking about these major East-West politics. And particularly within sport, you know, sports, in order to have the Olympic Games, in order for sort of FIFA matches to occur, anything, people had to come together and decide on fundamental rules and they had to agree on certain norms and schedules and sort of basic rules in order to function. Um, and so my research looks at how people sort of agreed and negotiated and made compromises. Um, and they still, there was still plenty of antagonism and there were still people who were trying to, you know, get one over the other side. Um, but I look at sort of the messiness and the ways that people negotiated, um, both their relative, um, sort of the relative, um, how do I say, the extent to which they were able to have some power and agency, but then also how they make compromises in order to achieve their goals. Um, and so that's my, my book project very broadly. And I can provide more specifics if that would be helpful because that's a very sort of macro look at it. Yeah, no, that's really, that's really interesting. So um, I, I'm not an historian, <laughs> so I'm a wannabe. I, I should say I'm a wannabe historian. Um, in conversation with, uh, oh, time means nothing in the pandemic <laughs> or in podcasting, but uh, in, in conversation um, with uh, Brandon Jett a few weeks ago, um, talking about how um, I sometimes wish I would have gone for the, the history PhD instead of sociology. And he kind of had the opposite <laughs> reaction. But I'm really <laughs> curious, like, how, how are you able, like, mm, this is almost like a one-on-one question. Are are you do you have access to like all of these old like communications or or like how are you how are you able to kind of parse out the messiness of this? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's been a messy process, but I'll start by saying one that Brandon Jett is like one of my best friends. <laughs> um, so that's really funny. And also I would say sociologists do do a lot of history. Um, uh, working on a podcast with two sociologists, they they know so much history. So I think uh, I think sociologists have to do a lot of it. In, it's, in, in, it's, in been, work. it's been where my research has gone or like my teaching oh, yeah? has really has gone more in that direction. Thinking about like, it started with, with like policy history and now um kind of like historical criminology and sociology of revolutions have, have really become my big my big area. So um I feel like I'm playing from way behind. <laughs> <laughs> but that's on those classes sound really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Um but this isn't about me. This is about how, how amazing <laughs> your stuff is. So that's how so you have access to these like what like communications or um interoffice memos or or what? Like, yeah. So, so actually the way that I started my research, I mean, I started off, yes, by doing like archival research and, and going to the national archives in Hungary, which are in Budapest, which is the capital city, um, going to the secret police archives, which takes a little bit more effort, um, a little <laughs> bit more challenging to get materials in there. Um, but, but what I really started doing with my researchers, I started interviewing people. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so doing oral history interviews, um, is a huge part of my research and really is what in some ways kind of got me jump started and really helped like is really what maintains my interest. And so 
Um, I started off by interviewing, for example, um, a guy who was a fencer in Hungary from the 1960s to the 1980s. And he is the father-in-law of my Hungarian language teacher um, when I was at the University of Florida. Mm -hmm. And she had told me, because I, 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 I should start too, that I was an athlete growing up and I, and I, and I was a D1 swimmer. Um, so, so I've always been interested in sort of athlete stories. And, and even though I'm not much of like a sports fan, like I don't watch the NBA, I don't watch the NCAA, I don't really watch sports outside of the Olympic Games. Um, but I had started getting interested in sport history and I was already doing Hungarian history. And my language teacher said, you know, my father-in-law has all these really fascinating stories about, you know, when he would travel abroad to go to international competitions, how he would smuggle goods back home. Um, because, um, in all of the Eastern European and all the communist states, there's always been a real shortage of basic consumer items. Um, and during the cold war era, it ranged from things such as like pantyhose was always really hard to get for a really long time, which is really interesting. Um, people were really interested in getting like tool fabric, like for wedding dresses and dresses are really hard to find, but also things like watches, um, and brand name, uh, brand names that were in the West and you couldn't find in Eastern Europe because of Cold War um, economic restrictions. And, and so people not only brought home goods for like their personal use and for family use, but people also sold them on the black market. Um, and this is what this fencer did. And he had these amazing stories about how he would he would buy, for example, um, the, he was a fencer. And so he used swords like in his sport. And, and so he, for example, that the swords that the Soviets made and the Soviet Union were apparently really inexpensive and really high quality mm -hmm. um, to the point where fencers all over the world wanted these swords that were made in the USSR. Um, and so he would buy a bunch of swords from the USSR and then he would sell them in like Munich and he mm -hmm. would get je he would get blue jeans, which were famously people always wanted blue jeans from, from the West. And so he would buy a bunch of jeans and bring them back to Hungary and sell them. He would buy like leather goods in Milan and sell them all over the world. And I'm thinking like, wow, these are not the stories that you hear when you think of Cold War sport. Mm -hmm. um, or, or, or maybe you do and you think, oh, like these athletes, they really won one over the communist state. Um, but when I was talking to him and other people, they were telling me, you know, like, my coaches knew that we were smuggling, you know, the, the, the head official of like my fencing federation, the national fencing federation, like he knew that we were smuggling goods and, you know, they just, they sort of like turned a blind eye to it as long as like you did it under the radar. And so I'm thinking like that gets at a level of complexity that we don't really hear about when we think about Cold War sports, especially in the U.S. I mean, it, it's so politicized that the narrative is so politicized in the U.S. Um, and so, so I, like I, like I said, I do look at a lot of archival documents. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But the oral history, that really rich mm -hmm. material is what really drew me into the topic and really is still fascinates me. That's so interesting. So my, another question I wanted to ask you was why Hungary specifically, mm -hmm. but it sounds like it's just one of those opportunities that came along and just sort of was the obvious choice. I mean, sort of. So, so the why hungry question, it's a good question. Basically when I finished undergrad, I knew I wanted to study a country in Eastern or Central Europe. Um, but I didn't know German. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when you're applying to really any kind of, um, master's or PhD level, um, sorry, PhD like history program, if you want to study like Germany or Russia, you know, two major countries in the region, you need to know the language ahead of time. Mm -hmm. It's pretty expected. 
Um, and my, uh, my boyfriend at the time is now my husband. He was starting his PhD program at university of Florida. Um, and I was taking a gap year after college. Um, and, and at university of Florida, like at a lot of major, uh, PhD programs, they have these, they have a center for European studies. Um, like a lot of places have a central, a center for Latin America studies, a center for sort of Asian studies. And a lot of these centers, they offer government, U.S. government funding to train graduate students to learn lesser known languages. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a holdover of the Cold War, this belief that if you train a bunch of graduate students, at least some of them may come work for the government and they mm-hmm. will already have these language skills. Um, and and so at U at University of Florida, there is a Hungarian history professor and there's a Hungarian language teacher. And I already had friends there that were studying like Polish history or mm-hmm. or um or or Czech history or other countries, but there weren't that many people doing Hungarian history. And I kind of thought like Hungary's an interesting country and, and I knew a little bit about it. Um and I originally started I in the masters, I started studying Hungarian Jewish history because I was really interested in the Holocaust. Um, and then I, I kind of, my, so I started the master's program doing Hungarian history and I visited Budapest and I thought like, this is an amazing place. It's beautiful. Um, the people there, it's such an interesting culture and the people there, um, may seem a little bit gruff on the exterior is kind of the stereotype that Eastern Mm -hmm. Europeans can be a bit gruff from an American perspective where everyone smiles. Um, but actually they're incredibly generous and I would say even more generous than Americans are like, like once they know you, they will go to the ends of the earth to help you. And I found that in my research, they gave me all these contacts to introduce me to all these people, which is just, I, I couldn't have done my research without them. Um, and then once I got to the PhD, uh, level, I, I, my advisor told me, you know, like you're an athlete, you should really look into this, um, this sport history book on soccer in the Soviet Union. And she's like, this book won a major prize. So I, I think if you were to study this and you were to look into it, I think you might actually get an academic job. <laughs> like this book won a prize. Therefore, there might be a chance to get an academic job. Like this is a legitimate field sort of thing. Um, and anyway, so, and I was already doing Hungarian histories and I had the language skills, which I'm still like constantly working on. Um, and so, so I just sort of shifted to studying sport history and just found like, wow, this material is so interesting. Um, and, and, you know, Hungary is a really interesting country. It's, it's gone through, a, unfortunately, a lot of turmoil over the last 200 years going from being ruled by like, uh, the Austrians and the Austro-Hungarian empire. Um, to then, um, achieving its independence after World War One, but then, um, enormous chunks of its land was taken from it. So the narrative goes and was given to neighboring countries, um, had a fascist ruler, um, allied with the Nazis to, to gain its lost territory. And then, um, you know, the Holocaust and the Cold War. So, so you know, it's, it's kind of been through a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and so it, to me, it's a really interesting place to study and also an interesting place in terms of just like the resiliency of, of the people who live there. Just having gone through so many um, sort of upheavals and, and really um, authoritarian governments and sort of how do people learn to live through that? How do people learn to survive? Which is sort of what I do in my, in my research too, is how do people survive a communist or socialist government um, and sort of how do they make do with that sort of system? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so, that's so interesting. And like, there's so much there to unpack. Um, so I, this is really just out of my own personal kind of curiosity. What was it like going into the secret police archives? That must've been kind of a, kind of a heady, heavy experience. I I have to think. 
Yeah, you know, I was like really gearing myself up for it to, for it to be that way, yeah. and I think you know, I, I think again, being being an American and coming out with all with coming in with all these biases, like it's a scary place, and like they're really worried about what I'm going to look at, um, and sort of seeing films kind of show it as like a, a, a scary thing. Um, my experiences there have been fine. I mean. I mean, it, it's a process and that you have to, you have to sort of like apply to do research there. They wouldn't necessarily say it's an application, but it sort of is where you have to state your credentials. Um, you need to tell them the topics that you're interested in researching and they do do a little bit of background information. And, and that's in part because there are strict rules about um, what people can and cannot access. And it also depends on your, your nationality. So for example, if I were a Hungarian citizen, I would have access to a lot more than what I do as an American citizen. So there's a fair amount of material that I can't, that I cannot access. Um, but they are, and but I found in my case, they, at least as of, as of a couple of years ago, when things may have changed, because I haven't been able to go back for a bunch of different reasons, um, they were pretty, they were a bit lenient in terms of allowing me to see some materials that maybe I wasn't officially allowed to see, but they sort of let me access it anyways. And I've worked with friends too, who will go in and request material that they know I would be interested in. And then they'll sort of let me know mm -hmm. this material exists. Um, in terms of actually doing research there, I mean, it's actually like a pretty... I don't know, a pretty normal environment. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not like, I don't, I don't feel like it's a repressive environment to work mm -hmm. within. Um, I, I don't really know how to explain it. It's kind of like a typical sort of little library looking thing where there are like these yeah. long, these long tables and you kind of stick your, you kind of find your spot and they give you your materials. I mean, one thing that makes it challenging to, 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 to kind of do research at that I think maybe people who may not be historians may not necessarily think about it, and that I didn't even think about it. Um, is that when you go there, you have to sort of like request like certain people that you, certain people that you want to research. So you need to have names, mm -hmm. but the issue is that you don't always know the names of the people you need to look at. Um, yeah. and, and that's very different from say, when you go to like, a, like the national archives in Hungary and, and archives, other places where you, you might say, you know, I'm looking for. Um, I, you know, you may have like a, a catalog and you request to say, you, know, you request to look at a specific uh, file mm -hmm. and the file is usually topical or chronological and it's not based on names. Um, and, and so in, in both sort of systems, whether you're searching by names or whether you're searching by uh, a, a time period or like a topic, you know, not everything that you want is going to be included in there. So you have to sort of figure out what are the rules of, of the cataloging system and sort of how can I work within the system and kind of work with, around it. Um, but really searching by names, I, I think that's the most difficult thing because you don't always know what you're looking for. And then, of course, there's a lot of material that a lot of these archives all over the world haven't cataloged. Um, so there may be material that you need that they don't even know exists in there. No. Um, and, and, and so that can be kind of challenging. But, but mm -hmm. the thing is with archives, and I think this is kind of the same way with any sort of data set, regardless of, of what field you're in, is that there are all sorts of biases inherent in them, right? And the thing is with archives is most archives are like imperialist archives and that they come from governments that are looking to collect data certain kinds of data about their about their citizens mm -hmm. whether it be like a ministry of sport for example which is in hungary they have like a ministry of sport the ministry of sport is looking to catalog certain information about its people in the moment and then they usually stick their files in like a corner somewhere or like in a filing cabinet 
Um, and, and then eventually they'll sort of give them over to the archive and, and they'll keep certain things for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're looking to, to collect certain information about their populace. Um, again, just like any sort of researcher is trying to do. So you also have to understand, you know, what, what is the agenda of the government? What is the agenda of the system? So that the secret police archives, you know, it's a very politicized organization, right? And from, from its core. So these were people who were trying to collect like information, both from informants who maybe worked unofficially, but also spies and, and mm-hmm. people like that, right? So, so they're looking to yeah. find information either for blackmail or to recruit them or, or, or get people in trouble or whatever it is. Um, so you do need to be aware of the, the, the agenda and the biases of the material that you're looking at and not simply accept it at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I think there are a lot of similarities between historians and sociologists in terms of understanding what are the influences and biases that shape this information. Oh, for sure. No, when I, uh, in, in, in the normal times, in the before times, when I had uh, that, that opportunity for a, a three or four day a week um, audience, uh, I would always tell my students that, you know, you should, I would really encourage them to either double or, or even minor in history just because it, it informs sociological work so much, um, especially like a lot of the criminology, uh, criminology stuff that I do, um, that uh, they can't possibly understand um, any any social problems that are ongoing now without without paying very close attention to sort of how everything got here, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, to put it in very simple terms. Um, I also want to say, you know, uh, I think people probably appreciate hearing that your advisor told you that you might be able to get an <laughs> academic job. Um, contrary to, to probably lots of our advisors who, who acted like getting an academic job was kind of a foregone conclusion. And I, I think appreciating the reality of, of what higher ed looks like anymore um, is, is refreshing. Um, so uh, you're also part of a podcast and I, I want to give you time to, to shout out your work there. Okay, cool. Um, right. So, so my podcast is called The End of Sport. Um, and I am a co-host and my other two co-hosts are two sociologists, um, Derek Silva and Nathan Kalman Lamb. And what we do is we interview athletes. Athletes are really our big priority, but also, um, other academics and, um, sports journalists and commentators and all of us who approach sports from a very critical perspective. Mm-hmm. And we look at all the ways that sports are actually really harmful in our lives. Um, and we really focus on harm is kind of the, 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 how do I say? The, the central way that we approach it, um, because a lot of because a lot of people look at sports in terms of all the all the way all the ways that sports are positive in our lives are inherently positive, inherently good, inherently healthy, and that they unify us. Right, that we are a very diverse society, and they bring people together all over the world. They bring it together people within communities, on like a state level and a national level, and all over the world. And they bring people together to just play sports and and be apolitical, right? Um, and 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 so we are very much about tearing that down as much as possible, and and look at all the ways that, that all the ways that in part because of this this sort of narrative, and this is really a myth that that sports are inherently harmful. Uh, so that sports are inherently good. This is a myth. And we would say is actually propaganda. 
to say that if you participate in sports, you will automatically be made into a healthier, a better person, someone that's more, you know, healthy mind, healthy body, and that you appreciate people for all their differences because you know how to, you know how to unite as a team and kind of work past your differences. And, and I see, and I see you laughing because it, it, it is such a myth, right? It is such a, it is such a pervasive myth. Um, and so we essentially interview people who help us break this down, whether it's, you know, one thing that we really focus on is the exploitation of, of, of largely black and brown athletes within the NCAA, particularly in football and basketball, because those are the two revenue generating sports. But we also look at, for example, um, how um, there's a lot of transphobia within sports. There's so much sex, sexism and, and misogyny and sort of how um, how sport, how, how, how do I say, how coaches, how the government, how um, sports officials, how um, NCAA, the IOC, um, and all these organizations really try to explain away all the ways that sports are harmful in order to support their own propaganda, in order to make money off of people's labor on the field, in the pool, et cetera. Um, and so that is really the heart of what we do on the end of sport. So I'm, I'm laughing because uh, this is a conversation I have in, in at least one class uh, every year or every semester, probably. Um, teaching either criminology or or juvenile delinquency, which is really like a, a class on adolescence, and hearing exactly what you said come out of the mouths of all of my student athletes in there, especially um, I, I think guys on the football team um, are are the biggest proponents of this of this myth making, um, mm-hmm. and are are sort of baffled and and shocked when I when I. I don't accept it when I look like I would, right? Because I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm six foot four. I'm, I'm a, a, a former weightlifter injured now and, and, and just kind of out of that, out of that life. Um, so I, I like by appearance, right? Um, I look less like a professor and more like a biker. And so you would expect me to be like, Oh yeah, bro. Like, <laughs> of course. And when I, when I throw it back in their faces, um, and, and say, you know, all, like all of the things that's, um, like all of the harm that sports cause, um, on adolescent life and on, on their lives as college students, um, even though, you know, Wilkes is a, is a D3 school, we don't have athletic, um, scholarships, uh, coming to play there, whatever they're playing is like their final opportunity, um, to, to play at, at the collegiate level, our football team notoriously has like, will we'll basically take anybody with a pulse. It seems like, um, and, and they, they know that. And so they know that their playing time is going to be extraordinarily limited. Um, they, they still, they still run towards it. Um, a lot of times, um, Usually, hopefully by junior year, I'm able to kind of crack <laughs> some of them and wear them down and get them to quit the team. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's so uh, frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. To, to hear this year after year after year coming out of the mouths of students who are so clearly um, being, being exploited, even at the D3 level, um, mm-hmm. and are, are, being, are being treated like they would be at a D1 want to be treated like they would be at a D1, um, have no problem with their coaches telling them or insinuating, um, because I don't have evidence of this, so I should say insinuating that it's more important to uh, 
to lift and, and practice and, and do that stuff um, than, than to go to class or to study sort of the, the um, meaningless, almost like, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say fraudulent because it makes it sound like more criminal than it is, but like the idea of like study hall for, for student athletes, right. Where the whole team gets together to study, but it's not, it's, it's, it's very much the opposite of that as a sort of like a, a a fiction pushed by the athletic department as like, no, we really care about um, our teams. Our, Our football players have to sign grade checks um which i've ignored those emails from their coaches this year because it doesn't like nothing ever comes from them um mm-hmm. and it's just it's just so maddening especially with like all the other ways that higher ed is is under assault constantly to kind mm-hmm. of see this almost like uh naked capitalism from from athletic departments that are like we're done pretending like we're part of the university. We're obviously here to make money. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you guys aren't. And so we're more important. And the students buy into that. Like a lot of the time. Yeah. And I saw so two thoughts and, and one is that, you know, I, it, it's, it's, so it, it's tough because on the one hand, like when I hear athletes and I, and I call them athletes, I, we tried to not call them student athletes just because the, the student, the student aspect, right. Like is so ignored yeah. or at least is so not valued. Like there are a lot of athletes are valued. If athletes are college students, their value is as being athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I mean, I mean, they're, they're raised on this. And like, and I was too, like I was too, I was a D one athlete and I, and I sat, I mean, I did so many things that now I'm just like, like, why was that? Why was I waking up at 4am when I was 14 years old going to some practice? Like, why was that a priority in my life? But if someone had tried to tell me this when I was 14, I I don't think I would have bought it. Like, I don't think I would have believed it. It really took for me to like be retired to, to, to finish college and, and really have many years out of it and then kind of come back and learn about all this. And part of it, I think is, you know, the, the historical aspect and even the sociological aspects are just so not, when it comes to sport, they're not valued and they're not taught to, to athletes or not taught to anybody. So even if you're a sports fan, I mean, when, when modern sports were first created, in the 1800s by the British, the British, which owned this massive global imperial empire, right? That they were huge players in the slave trade, like, you know, enslaved and dispossessed people and had settler colonies all over the world. And they were the ones that created the first modern sports in terms of setting up like a modern football soccer league mm-hmm. and saying, we are going to, we're going to decide on specific rules to play the game so that we, so that, so that we can differentiate what is and what is not our sport and set up like records, all these things, you know, they set it up so that mainly up like upper middle class and, and upper class white men could play. Right. So from the beginning, it is inherently exclusionary mm-hmm. and inherently, um, like separating people and saying who can and cannot compete in this. And it's continued since then. And the fight to include women, to include, you know, black and brown athletes, to include trans athletes, right? We, we continue to see these struggles today. But the thing is, is that no one's taught that. Like I wasn't taught that. And even when I, I, I coached 
for off and on for I think six years in graduate school at the at, a, at club teams um, in the in the college town where I was in Florida. And like, it's not like I ever thought to bring it up to them. I mean, I think a lot of the education, if you were to bring it in on like a club team level, it has to be not just like we're going to learn this history one day, but it has to be like you know, um, it has to be repetitive and has to be constant. Um, but you know, I think when when athletes learn about this history, they're like, oh wow. Like I, like I have been engaging in something that's been going on for centuries that has harmed people and like the people who speak out against this in their own time, you know, like the, the famous examples of, of John Carlos and Tommy Olympics. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we revere these two black male athletes for the, the black power salute and for defying white supremacy Olympic games, but in their time, they were not lauded, right? And so in Colin Kaepernick, there's obviously much more support for him now, but we've seen so much backlash against him and he still isn't playing. And Tim Tebow was offered a con, you know, was, you know, people are talking about him playing, which, you know, again, just, you know, just shows whiteness and anti-blackness at work. Um, but I think, again, when you, when you kind of make these connections there to, to athletes and, and to students that they understand it but they just don't get it um and then the you know so i were also work at a, a d3 school and and something that i've been thinking about is like we we do place a lot of emphasis on academics but one th problem that i have the more that i've been thinking about it since i've been working here is that you know whereas at like a d1 program uh, you know, at the very least, athletes are getting scholarships. Mm -hmm. At a D3 program, athletes are paying and going into debt to go there to play sports. Yep. And then there, and then we're kind of regardless of whether the teams are successful or not, the D3 schools are still using the images and, and kind of using the existence of these teams as like a community binding thing. It's something that brings students there for team spirit for, you know, homecoming or sort of whatever it is. And, and I'm just like, and students are going into debt for this. Um, and and it, to me, it just is very problematic. And this is not, you know, I, I don't say this to like criticize people at my school, but because I, I, I'm not blaming my school. I'm not blaming your school per se. This is the NCAA system. Yep. And this is the system of higher education, which are absolutely, they're married to each other. Mm hmm um, and I just, the more I've been thinking about it, like, you know, having athletes in my classes who are like, you know, I have, I have practice and, and then I also work on the, I, I work all weekends in order to afford to be able to go to school here. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, this is not the purpose of college. Yeah. This is not the purpose of you attending school here, or this is, is not the primary purpose. Um, mm -hmm. and when you scratch, yeah. scratch the surface too, like you find, uh, they are, they're probably sleeping maybe three hours a night sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. like, like burning the candle at both ends, um, mm -hmm. almost literally. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's why we see a lot of like partying on the weekends, um, or using like, like post-game celebrations as, as an excuse to like blow off steam mm -hmm. and kind of cope with all that stress that they are, are basically being told to like play through the pain. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. And yeah, uh, and there were things like uh, students are, are always surprised when I know about like Adderall abuse on campus, mm -hmm. right? Um, they think it's this, this big secret thing that nobody on faculty knows about. And when I just drop it casually, there's like a lot of like nervous <laughs> like glances around the room. Like, do I know who it is? Mm -hmm. um, when, when now I can just kind of assume that it's, it's a lot of people. Um, yeah. Um, because of that, that pressure that 
athletic departments are putting on them and that faculty are putting on them. Um, and both, both groups kind of wanting to be the dominant or the, the mm-hmm. most, um, um, controlling influence in their lives and students feeling powerless to say like no to anybody. Um, while also, like you said, at least in the case of my, my institution taking on tens of thousands of dollars, um, in debt every year, um, for the privilege of, of riding the bench. Um, mm-hmm. or, yeah. or playing in games that are only attended by, by students, families, um, and graduating with a 2.2 GPA. Like what, what did you, what did that accomplish? You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. It's, it's heartbreaking sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, you brought up the, the issue of like being in, you know, injured, you know, former weightlifter cause you're injured. And that, that's the other thing is these, these injuries don't go like, they don't go away. I mean, don't. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I, 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 I was started swimming when I was eight, like swimming year round when I was eight years old and doing doubles by the time that I was 14. And I'm so lucky that like, I still have my shoulders and they are still intact. And I was a distance freestyler. So swimming like tons of miles every day, which, okay. So you're not like hitting the pavement, you know, you're not doing things that you may be doing in other sports, but it still is a lot of, I mean, almost because of that. And, I, and I've actually been talking about this with some swimming friends. I think because of this idea that swimming is healthy and, and because you're not pounding anything that's hard and because it's like a therapy, like it's a re- rehab exercise that when people have surgeries, that they then start off in the pool because it's healthy, that I actually think our coaches push us even harder because they think it's healthy, but that's another issue. But, but still, I mean, like I have back and lower disc injuries and I have like yep. pain right now in my legs. And I mean, this is something that again, like just carries forward in your lives. And I mean, we see that with the concussion stuff, but mm-hmm. then even in all the sports that don't have issues with concussions, I mean, there are still so many bodily injuries, not to mention, of course, all the, the fat phobia. I mean, there are just so, so many issues that are, that are just fundamentally harmful. And the reality is that if you are like a casual sports fan or you are someone who hasn't thought critically about your engagement and contribution to sports as an athlete or as a coach, like you hear all these things and, and, and you're just like, no, but like my experience is good and I gained self-esteem and I learned goal setting. And it's like, you maybe got these things. Like, I feel like I learned how to set goals and try to achieve them, but then at what cost? Yeah. And I, and I also didn't learn like consent. I didn't learn to say, you know what, that's enough. Like, I don't need to push my body harder. Like that is something that I wasn't taught because it was always like shoot for your dreams and, you know, be tough, right. Be, be an athlete. Don't, don't wimp out, you know, all of these things that you kind of hear over and over again and actually have a lot of similarities to academia. That's the other thing. <laughs> I mean, so many similarities to academia that it, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And, and, and we always, we talk on the podcast that if only there were sort of more um, collaboration between, or not collaboration, but you know, th- there's a lot more cross crossover issues between academia and sports that would actually be really enriching for both sort of industries and fields to talk about, but that's kind of another issue. Yeah. Because it I mean, <sighs> Yeah, siloing is a problem, uh, and and lack of like worker uh, unity, and lack of unions, and lack of union uh, communication <laughs> is mm-hmm, absolutely a, a massive problem that allows all of us to be exploited and and um, uh, socialized to think that burning burning ourselves out is is uh, not just the norm, but something to be celebrated. Um, yeah, and and instead of the opposite, right? Um, so I'm. I'm curious, and I, I think I just want to kind of talk about this. Like one of the, mm, 
So have you had have you had success in your classes in in getting students to think critically about um, not just the NCAA, but I guess other like major um, sports bodies around around the world, like the IOC or FIFA or even like the NFL or or places like that. Oh, good question. Um, so, so I, I, I only, so in all transparency, um, I just started teaching a sport history class last fall. I taught this like, um, world history of sport. Cause I'm like, I'm the world historian in my department. Um, and, and so, I mean, the class needs a lot of revisions, um, as you know, classes do when you're first yeah. sort of creating them. So it's a world history class. Um, the, the, one of the challenges was sort of, even though we, we sort of looked at case studies of sport, if, if sport history all over the world, I mean, the student's main frame, uh, frame of reference is American sport and their own experiences. So one thing that I really struggled with was getting them to focus on, okay, we're talking about soccer in Brazil. We're not talking about soccer in the U.S., which are two fundamentally different things. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, I think the class was successful in getting them to question and kind of challenge certain issues within their own historical contexts. And then I think questioning certain things about the American sport history experience in terms of the NCAA and the NFL. What was interesting is that those things actually came from the students themselves in the sense of like, so for example, we did a week where we looked at gymnastics um, because of like the Larry Nasser stuff and, and, and also, and I had some gymnasts in the class that so actually worked out really well. And what, and, and, and in talking about sexism and misogyny in sports is that then a lot of female athletes, oh, totally of their own volition. I didn't ask them to do this at all. On Zoom, they like unmuted themselves and offered up their experiences of either sexual harassment or abuse, not going into detail or of saying like, yes, like I am a player, I am a player in this sport and our locker rooms look like this compared to the men's locker rooms that look like this. Mm-hmm. And so that was really interesting. And I honestly think in a lot of ways, and I'm hoping, I'm sure that that, athlete, that, that, that students in your classes bring up kind of similar examples, but in a lot of ways that was more powerful and getting students to, to understand the things we have been talking about and reading and getting them to realize like, oh, these are contemporary issues. These are not just historical ones. And I'm actually kind of in thinking about that's, I think, a, a weakness that I need to work on more is getting students to realize that, yes, there are d- d- distinct things that happen in the past in certain contexts, but there are things that carry on into the contemporary sense or obviously as a sociologist, that's more your strength. Um, so I need to do a better job as a kind of conti- tying that the past to the present. Um, but, but I think students are more willing now to kind of question the NCAA and question the NFL and be like, are the NFL's like anti-racist and diversity efforts, are those legitimate? <laughs> there were still a few that were like, oh, they have anti-racism on the field. There were still a few students that I think were willing to believe the NFL and the NCAA. And then there were a lot of students that were like, no, this is not enough. Um, so no, like general consensus, but, but I still think more students are willing to be convinced than, than at the beginning of the semester. Yeah. Just like they're, uh, the, the NFL sponsored concussion research <laughs> should not, oh my God. not be taken seriously whatsoever. Um, yeah. and so I asked about it because I, I teach a, a course on violence and, um, mm. I've, I've broadened it. Right. Um, cause one thing I found it's that I I have to make my classes interesting for me or else I just turn into like a robot, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, my violence course, I wanted to expand um, into sort of like pop culture and sports and, and things like that. And one of the 
um, the organizations that I talk about a lot in the violence class is WWE, which mm. is um, an easy, I found it's an easy way in to get students who have not thought critically about sports before, or um, especially sports that are more violent, um, to kind of get them thinking about that. Because uh, WWE is, um, it's such a fascinating company and such a fascinating product. Um, that a lot of students uh, will admit familiarity with. Um, they, but they are socialized to say they only liked it when they were kids. Like they're, it's still something that people are ashamed to admit um, that they that they follow. Um, but the way that that company um, exploits employees and their and their their athletes um, and kind of the the bizarre um, behavior of ownership and like the political maneuverings of ownership. Um, that a lot of students don't really aren't really aware of um, is like I said, it's for me, it's been a, a way in to say like, okay, well, if, if this company is, is doing these things, X, Y, and Z, right. Uh, what do you think like the NBA or the NFL or, or the NCAA are, mm-hmm. are doing um, right under your noses, right? If, if this yeah. company, you know, if WWE is, is, sort of de facto running or was running Linda McMahon was the chair of um, the Trump 2020 reelection campaign. And they're like, wait, mm. what? <laughs> like <laughs> Vince McMahon's wife was like running the like, Oh yeah. And like alleged bribery in Florida, right. To get them um, to, to be allowed to run shows down there um, during the pandemic, getting themselves declared as an essential uh, essential workers um, via a pretty massive, <laughs> campaign donation to the governor um from the trump campaign stuff and they're like like why why wasn't this on the news like this is blatant mm. corruption i'm like well welcome welcome to the united states like this is right absolutely as usual so if, mm-hmm. if world wrestling entertainment which is um sort of 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 stereotyped as of being kind of this uh what's what i'm looking for uh low class type of entertainment is doing these types of things. Um, what do you think FIFA is doing? What do you think the IOC is doing? Why do you think why do you think the Olympic Games are still going full speed ahead, even though you know public outcry in Japan has been uh, stop, stop, stop? Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and finding the entry point can yeah can can be challenging. Yeah. I, I, that's something that I'm I'm still definitely working on. And, and I would say with the sport history class. One thing that I struggle with is, you know, it's meant to be a world sport history class, yeah. right? So we only focus on the U.S. in certain cases. And obviously, like I said, they want to keep bringing, students want to keep bringing it back to the, 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 the context they're familiar with and that they feel like they can contribute to, which I, I get. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but obviously, in, in trying to like expand them, expand <laughs> their knowledge so that they're not just rooted, so not, they don't believe that the U.S. context is the only one that matters. That's always a struggle. Yeah. Um, but I would say, I think the most successful to kind of give an anecdote, kind of similar to the WWE, one the most successful kind of case that we studied in class because when I teach I, I really focus on case studies because mm-hmm. I teach a ton of world history classes and it's you know coverage is not my strength at all like I like I am not great with details and I always say that if date that if date memorization is like <laughs> the, the standard by which to judge a historian I'm a terrible historian because I, I just don't remember dates very well 
And, um, and, and, and I teach at a Slack and where, um, you know, we don't really lecture, like we do like mini lectures, but really it's a lot of heavy discussion with students doing, expecting to do the reading and come to class and discuss. Um, and so I think that the case study that in that class worked the best, I think it's cause it's about swimming, which I really care about to go back to your point. Um, and it is, is the, the sort of history of, um, history of, of white supremacy within swimming and within the aquatics world. And so there's this really fantastic book by Kevin Dawson called Undercurrents of Power. And he looks at how um, West Africa, how from like the 1400s to the 1800s until after the Civil War, um, how West African uh, c- communities in West Africa were, were the strongest swimmers, the strongest divers, the strongest canoers in all of the world, like they they were they were experts in the water and then when um european invaders and enslavers brought west africans and enslaved them in 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 the us that a lot of them carried over their aquatic skills and would like dive for pearls for their owners would would canoe like they were very familiar with the water and so they brought their expertise and their white and, and slave owners um, um um capitalized on them um and how if we kind of know that history of how black communities in certain parts of the world where the strongest swimmers in the world, how do we get to a point where there's a public health crisis and there's this myth that black people can't swim? So mm-hmm. how do we connect the two? And and that really like opened up students' eyes of like, wow, that is such an example of white supremacy of work. And that is such an example of how um, of sort of how this, this problem is still going on today. And then again, cause I'm a swimmer, I, I really think about it a lot. I mean, the main governing body for swimming in the U.S. is USA Swimming. And if you look at the, the, the staff, it's almost all white people. Mm-hmm. And like some of the only, I think the only black people that work in the organization work in their DEI department, of course, right? That's the only thing that they can have any expertise in, which is such racist BS. Um, And there are other people of color that work in other positions too. And I don't mean to undermine the work that they're doing, but you know what? It is a white supremacist organization. Um, And sort of how do these threads continue today that we don't even realize that we don't even know about Mm -hmm. that people just assume as being like the norm, right? That's just, that's just how it is Mm -hmm. when like, no, there have been centuries of these efforts trying to, to ensure that black and brown people can't swim, that they are penalized to go back to violence, right? That, you know, efforts to make bodies, of water into sites of trauma, whether it's throwing, you know, um, um, black bodies who were lynched, you know, after they were lynched, they would throw them in the river, they would throw them in the ocean, um, and, and really making it, is, making it so that bodies of water were not safe places for black people to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I think that was kind of the most successful case, but, but again, you know, people, they, they know the one case and then they do burn like, oh, well, look at that, what the NFL is doing. Look what the, the NCAA is doing. You know, they're making such strides. So that's always a challenge, I think, for students to kind of see the broader picture, um, but still maintain the specificity of like the historical context or the contemporary case or whatever it is. Yeah. And just that the indoctrination of the American dream, right? LeBron James <laughs> can not have a college degree and he can become one of the uh, most powerful celebrities in the world um so, right so that so ergo there's no there's no problem right why would there be um yeah. so we also wanted to talk today a little bit about the public scholarship part mm-hmm. of, of your career um and how uh how struggling how how much of a struggle and how challenging this can be that's what i wanted to say challenging this can be sometimes so 
Um, I have some experience with this, but I not certainly not the same as, as yours and, and have not gotten um, the same types of, of blowback that you have gotten for some of your stuff on end of sport and your, um, your, your work. Um, Cause I think social media is work and I think social media should count as, as part of our work. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm going to call it mm-hmm. that your, your work on, on Twitter, um, at least where I follow you. Um, um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what has that been like for you? What has this been like for you? Yeah, it's been a kind of an interesting ride. I mean, and I like probably like most people I, I started, I joined Twitter to kind of meet people and, and kind of and network. I hate to use that word network, but you know, meet people, but also kind of share my research as I was writing my dissertation. And, and so that's been kind of a work in progress over the last couple of years. And then I joined the end of sport in June of 2020. So almost a year ago. Um, and so that was kind of my first, like kind of real like, I don't want to say first foray, but like official kind of foray into doing sort of public scholarship and kind of sharing my expertise with people beyond academia because I mean, Hungary is a small country and Cold War sport is such a specific topic. You know, I can only reach so many people by talking about that on Twitter. Um, and and so, I mean, on the one hand, it's been really like exciting and enriching. And as I've, I've said on Twitter and talked about with you, I mean, it's something that I'm like, I'm really passionate about. And I feel like there is such a, there's been there's been such a disconnect or there's been such an attempt to kind of separate academia and what what scholars do in their work from what the general public reads whether it's history sociology right it's all these fields and i think i know the history case best but there you know the 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 public his, the, the people the public scholars in the history field who maybe got their phd like 20 30 years ago but you know have had other jobs and they have they they do very much like popular history in a way that's not necessary you know it's popular history in the sense of like trying to reaffirm popular narratives of our history and i think within the culture wars moment that we're in right now in the 1619 project you know it's something that is very kind of fresh in people's minds um but within the end of sport i mean we published a lot of these pieces in the guardian and, and time magazine online and and um and and ba- the baffler and other places that are trying to kind of share our expertise with readers in as many different venues as possible um to kind of look at you know how athletes are exploited look at how their voices are not taken seriously and how you know they how athletes don't need to be grateful for the college education they're supposedly getting because it's not you know it's not the same education they're getting and all these things um um but but in terms of like the blowback i mean and i'll just sort of provide a quick summary this was at the end of february early march is essentially Nathan and I got into a disagreement with an ESPN radio show host, Dan Dockich, over whether college athletes are exploited or not. And, you know, we were, you know, you know, rehearsing, rehashing many, um, you know, well-documented examples and scholarship and saying, like, yes, of course they're, you know, exploited or whatever. And it just quickly devolved into, like, personal attacks. Um, And essentially, he went on his radio show, which has, I don't even know how many listeners, and he doxed. Nathan and spelled his last name out and he didn't, he didn't refer to my name, but he said, you know, this, this woman who does Hungarian studies and, and he made a sexually suggestive comment. I mean, it was a vague comment, but it's clearly had, in, in my view, had like um, sexually suggestive um, things to it. 
And, um, and, and essentially it was sort of picked up by a couple uh, media outlets and people, you know, came to our, like, we sort of started talking about it on Twitter and wanted to make people aware of it and people came to our support. And then with that came a lot of really negative backlash with people, um, emailing, emailing us and messaging us and people threatening sexual violence at my office hours, just kind of really, really awful stuff. Um, what I'll say is, I mean, I was, I was incredibly fortunate in that, I had already, I mean, I'd already been communicating with my college's communications folks to kind of let them know, like, I'm doing a lot of this public work. And anytime we would come out with a piece, I will send it to them immediately so that they're aware of it, so that they can publicize it if they see fit. But also to be aware that if people start emailing my deans and, and telling them, you know, so-and-so, this person should be fired because of her beliefs or whatever, they know about it. And then they're hearing about it from me first. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that they would support me and that they support my not only free speech, but also that I'm using like evidence-based, like all of my points are based on evidence, right? It's not just like my random opinion. These are like scholar, this is scholarly expertise that I'm using that you're using, right? This is not just based on like my random opinions uh, based on my life experiences. Um, and, and so I was very fortunate in that um, they immediately were like, we support you. And they came out with a statement that they sent to the faculty saying they support my right to free speech is based in evidence. Um, and then they had a very strong um, statement that the, the communications people put on on social media in support of me. And, and they had run these statements by me first so that they could get my feedback, uh, which I thought was, you know, it was very much like a very collaborative process, which I really appreciated. Um, and, and, and it was really great to see them show such a strong show of support because, you know, we're seeing these things happen all over the place. And, and I really haven't seen that many institutions publicly come out in support of their faculty. And I had so many people saying, my college would never do this. Mm-hmm. You know, saying that like, you know, just people telling me in DMs like this would never happen to me or like tagging their institutions and saying, please take note of this. Yeah. Um, and all of that was wonderful. And, and I'm so appreciative of that. And even still, like I'm in communication with them and I'm sending them the stuff that we're doing and making them aware of, you know, this might this might cause some backlash, you know, this and that. And that is all wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of my... My long, my, my continuing sort of issue with how academia at large considers public scholarship is they think her, they encourage us to do it and they say they're supportive, but are they really doing everything that they need to be doing to support us in an everyday sense? Like what value does public scholarship have when we go up for tenure? How is it considered? Is it just quote unquote service? And like a lot of people say, you know, like when it comes to scholarship, it needs to be rooted in like peer reviewed scholarship. But I would say we're still doing scholarship when we interact on Twitter, right? We're still using our brains in a scholarly way to analyze things every single day. Um, whether it's on your podcast, whether it's on my podcast, whether we're writing public pieces, whether we're doing other things, we are still lending our expertise in a scholarly way in a way that is labor, that is work, as you, as you said. And, and, and somehow we need to figure out how to consider that. I don't know if it's its own category. I don't know what it is, but it's not just service. And, and also service, the word service just has, you know, that just devalues much of the work that we do anyways. That doesn't actually adequately encapsulate the work that we all do um, in, 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 in any manner or form. Um, 
But I did. The other thing is too, is that, you know, if, if our institutions and if academia is going to be encouraging us to do this, this sort of public scholarship, they need to ha- have very frank conversations with themselves about how our associations, how, um, how our institutions are, are going to come to our support. How are they going to handle when we, when, not if, but when we are harassed, when we are dragged, when we might get doxxed. I mean, there's the, the faint, the, the famous, um, a black medievalist who was docked by a fellow academic um, that's going around on that's going around on Twitter. I mean, it's happening every day, and, and we're seeing it in journalism, and we're seeing it in academia. And like, and I and I keep tweeting about it now after it happened because I'm just like, we need to wake up and we need to be aware of the the resources that are available, and we need to make sure that our institutions are behind us. And if they're not, like, what is our recourse? I think that's the other thing is that for people who are not as lucky as I am, what, what can they do? Because that's gotta be isolating. That's really harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so frustrating. And I think what you, what you said about um, uh, using that umbrella of service as a way to kind of diminish the importance of a lot of our work is, is like, honestly, I think immoral. <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and so far beyond unfair um and i i also think that using sort of peer review as a bludgeon i think for like like what is and isn't considered legitimate when peer review itself has become like this at least in criminology this this incredible gatekeeping mm-hmm. um tool that i think really prevents um uh uh forward thinking and important work from from coming out because it's not just rehashing the same uh three ideas that have been in the in the literature for the last 30 years or more um i i i don't i i hate to say it but i i don't know how valuable peer review is is um in a lot of ways anymore um and i think i think higher ed is so determined to hang on to the status quo and there are so many faculty members who are uh, determined to hang on to that status quo that as we see like the walls crumbling around us, right? Last summer, so many universities using the pandemic as an excuse to implement austerity measurements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and fire people with tenure and, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, um, sort of the, uh, the log jam, right? In the job market um, that's been created. And all the professional organizations just kind of sat by the sideline and were like, well, it's not our responsibility to, to say or do anything. By the way, here's our call for papers for our next, uh, our next conference in Los Angeles where hotels are going to be $600 a night. Um, mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was just infuriating, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to see so many faculty just like puppets on a string, honestly. Um, completely missing the big picture of things and and behaving in in ways that like I wouldn't let my children <laughs> behave you know it's it's embarrassing um how how some people act um like I said the walls are crumbling down around the entire academy not just specific disciplines but the entire academy and we're going to still go hard on tenure requirements and mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to continue making reviewer two jokes and we're going to continue treating our students like they're children instead of stakeholders in the community. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, we're going to continue, you know, worshiping politicians <laughs> um, who clearly don't have our, our interest in mind. You know, it's, 
it's so like sometimes I think like I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm maybe it's me maybe maybe I've just gone crazy and and I I don't know it's 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 so it's 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 just frustrating you know I I I tweeted the other day um so we're recording this on May 24th this will probably come out in like a month um so by now Untenured Tracks has over 6000 downloads which is um small right we're a small podcast um my my total citations on Google Scholar for my career are at 60 <laughs> so this is done 100 times better than right. than my academic work um and it has been listen has been downloaded all around the world you know and i put mm-hmm. that in my in my annual evaluations because i think it's important to say that yep. you know the book i wrote um might be assigned in a few classes around the country but this podcast has been downloaded in, in six continents like that's mm-hmm. important you know these are stories from untenured people that are are getting out there from small schools like ours right yep. um that nobody outside of of Pennsylvania has has probably heard of, um, or the region at least, if we want to be favorable, has heard of. Um, I think it's really cool that like this is going to be downloaded around the world, and that's really important. That I wish that our schools both would would be like this is actually really amazing press that two faculty members put together to hype our work and maybe be a little bit critical of our institutions. But hey. It, what's better than you know bad publicity is better than no publicity <laughs> yeah and i just yeah echo so much of what you said the, 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 it's so frustrating to see people just like stick their heads in the sand and just hold fast to the things that for whatever reason make them feel comfortable when mm-hmm. you're right academia is crumbling and like we're seeing, I mean, and it's not even, there's so many, the issue is that there's so many facets to this, right? There's, like you said, there's the, the, the austerity measures that are being used as a tool to eliminate faculty members and oftentimes younger faculty members. And I'd be very curious if, if indeed it, these schools are letting go a lot of younger faculty members. These are probably uh, my, a lot of the minoritized faculty members, right? Too. So that, that's an issue. Um, there's the, the the several state legislatures at this point that are banning quote unquote CRT, and I say quote unquote because they don't actually know what it means. They don't know what it right? means. It, it, they don't know what it means. Um, yeah, I, I, and not to mention, you know, there's the, the, the tenure denial at a UNC. I mean, there are just so many different. And then, of course, you know, these schools somehow their athletic budgets ha- somehow have all this money to pay millions of dollars and buy out fees to the coaches that they that they fire or whatever i mean it's just it's all just seems like such a dumpster fire i mean i and it you know it was interesting i was like talking to someone who wasn't sure if they were going to be let go by the university or not and she was saying you know like i you know i feel like you at least with the podcast like you're starting to pivot and in case something happens to your job. And I'm like, I mean, that wasn't the aim, but like, I, I guess, but I'm also just like, why? Like I do this because I, because it's, because I'm passionate about it, which Pat, you know, working as a passion is also problematic because yeah. then I can more easily be exploited because it's a passion. And, yeah. uh, you know, so that's also an issue, but I'm like, I'm not doing it to pivot. I'm doing it because I like it. And because it's, it's invigorating, not because I'm, it's a backup. Like I'm not doing it to like save myself in case I do let go. But that's also a sad, sad state of affairs that a, a, a tenure trial faculty member would even have to do that. 
Um, and I'm lucky, like I'm, I'm so lucky to have a tenure track job. That's the other thing. I have so many friends who don't. And, you know, like you said, the backlog since 2008 that never recovered. And then not to mention now, I mean, the job market's essentially at a standstill. I mean, there are some fields that are hiring, but it is very few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. So, and, and you see the people on Twitter who are, yeah, tweeting about, and I tweet about CFPs too, but tweeting about like seemingly really minor things. And that's the thing they feel comfortable about tweeting when the, just things are burning all around us. It just, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just really bizarre. The dissonance is, is something else to witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 it makes me want to give up. Like mm. honestly, I, I've only recently brought this, this podcast back. Um, I had to take, I had to take time off. Um, it was, things were another project. We won't get into it on here. Um, (laughs) another project got, got out of control. Um, Mm. and I needed to step away and I wanted to bring this back to kind of see how it felt. Um, and I think it's cool, but I'm still going to take a more time off over the summer. Yeah. um, And then see about, do we want to bring this back again? and try to record a semester's worth of, of interviews to run from, I think probably September to December. It's mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's a ton of work, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, for us to put this out for uh, a university to say like, <laughs> Oh, well, <laughs> like, yeah. Or like, cool. good job. Yeah. They're like, like, yeah, good job. We like that you do this, but we're not going to really consider it to be like a, a major yeah. a major product and even product devalues it, but you know what I mean? They're not seeing it. Yeah. It's, really significant. It's, not, it's not a significant endeavor, right? When's, when's mm-hmm. that next book contract coming though? That's, yeah. that's what's more important. And I, I wish people, I don't know. I, I wish the professional organizations would, would have more backbone um, mm-hmm. to take a more principled stand rather than just kind of sending out really uh Oh, what, what's I'm, what am I looking for? Really like two-dimensional, really kind of toothless statements around, you know, protests that happen or departments closing or mm-hmm. whatever. Even then, I don't think anything has been sent out about departments closing, but just sort of like keep on, like, don't forget about, you know, your abstracts are due soon. <laughs> right, right. You might not have a job yeah. anymore, but still come, come give a talk to three people at eight o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to your point about taking a break, like, I I hate that. How do I say I don't obviously it it sucks that that other thing kind of got out of control. But I mean, kudos to you for for being like, okay, I need to step away from this. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that we don't always feel like we can and we feel like we owe it to other people. And like, even I mean, we've like on our podcast, I think last summer, we were we were trying to pump out like two episodes a week because it was like we were sort of just starting it and trying to sort of, you know, stake our, I don't say stake our claim, but we were trying to sort of make a name for ourselves. And then we slowed down to one a week when the semester hit. And then this spring has been much more sporadic. It's basically like when, when we can, and then we're recording one tomorrow. We haven't recorded one in a month. I don't know. We're just, and then we're taking June off because we're just like, we need a break. Like we just, and we have three of us. That's the other thing. We can pass it around. Whereas you're the only host, you know, so that's all on you. And um, I don't know. And, and I, so I, I also, I agree, this is more work, but I agreed to do, be part of like a reading group at my school for this book, The Slow Professor. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't know anything about it. I actually haven't heard much about it, but I'm like, like we all need to figure out and, and, and not that we need to do it individually, even though because of neoliberalism, it is pushing us to do it individually, but like as a whole, like academia, we all need to slow down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a big thing on, on Twitter last week, I think about, um, publishing demands. Uh, and, and somebody tweeted like, Hey, if somebody coming up, somebody in their fourth year had, had done X, Y, and Z, what would your department say? Yeah. Um, and, and kind of a blow up, um, um, from one, uh, one tweet specifically in response to that, right. That, that would, that would have been good progress, but the, but that department would have wanted more from that person. Um, there's a reason why this arms race (laughs) has Mm -hmm, developed mm -hmm. and it's departments having absurd and, and inhumane and un and unethical, honestly, um, uh, publishing demands, which creates bad research, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and the whole practice of like, we're only going to count these top journals that have mm-hmm. a 95% rejection rate. Like this is, you need to recognize the machine <laughs> that you are willingly playing into. And it, I, I pray that like, the result of this is is more chairs and more deans and more provosts recognizing like this is untenable what we're yeah. what we're doing um yeah so like i uh <laughs> a couple of years ago i broke my back um and it took months okay. to get it diagnosed right um wow I, yeah my doctor He's a he's a good guy. He he just said it was um, arthritis. Basically, oh. I had to go to like a carousel of of tests and stuff to, to finally find out that it's a it's a piece of my spine um, that broke. Um, and so I went to like once I found out and that and that next semester started, I went in and I was like, so there are gonna be days where I have to sit down because I broke my back and it's like. For some reason, it's pushing on the nerves in my in my spine, and it makes my quad sometimes feel like weaker. So I need to sit down. Um, yeah. So I, I'm sorry for that, but I'm going to sit down. <laughs> and uh, I told them, you know, like looking back on why this happened to me and how this happened, um, I I pushed myself too hard at stuff, and so I no longer expect you to work on the weekends because I'm not mm-hmm. going to work for you on the weekends. And they're like, what <laughs> is happening right now? As I modeled, and I realize now like how toxic it was for me to model like this workaholism um, for, for so long, you know? And what I'm going to do when, when we're back in person in, in the fall is say, like, not only am I going to have to sit down sometimes because I can't stand, uh, and I'm, I'm not expecting you to work on the weekends, uh, don't email me after five. <laughs> don't email yeah. me on the weekends uh i'm not going to send out stuff at night for you to read or, or anything like that you know take space for yourself um because if you waste your one life that you have grinding yourself into dust uh you're gonna regret it for sure because yeah. i do um mm-hmm. very much so i have tenure but i also have a back injury that hasn't healed <laughs> yeah yeah um and I think I would rather have a healthy back. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Wow. I'm so sorry. I know. It, I, so 
Uh, I was just moving rocks in my backyard. Like my, there's always this gap between when my summer break starts and my, my wife's and my kids break starts. Oh, I, I went to Lowe's and I bought some bags of rocks to put under the swing set, um, under the clubhouse part of my kid's swing set. Um, so the grass wouldn't grow up so much and look, look terrible. And I bent over to pick it up, which I know is a dumb thing to do. And I felt something pop. And here we are almost two years later <laughs> that I've been, wow. been dealing with this off and on. Yeah. I finished physical therapy right before lockdown. I graduated from physical therapy. So I've had like those exercises and stuff to kind of help. Um, but it's still every single day, this, this kind of chronic pain from this, um, that probably a lifetime of, of bad lifting practices resulted in, like, it wasn't that it wasn't those rocks that did it. If it wasn't that it would have been something else, you know? Um, but I've got two small children. Like I can't not play with my kids. I can't not pick my kids up because of that, because of this, like that would be inhumane. So, um, did I tell my department that I, I broke my back carrying, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> carrying in the university for all these years. Yes, I did. I sure did. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's kind of is what it is. And like the students are, the students get it. Like yeah. they've been, they've been understanding with it. I'm not looking forward to meeting like, a, like now two years worth of students that I haven't met in the fall in person to be like, here's, here's my thing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, but it's, it's so, and it's like stuff like that too, right? Like we talk about how academia doesn't really value mental health and, and all the burnout there, but I don't think we really appreciate the physical toll that this career takes. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for folks like, like us who are at, at Slacks that are teaching, you're probably teaching a four, four, right? Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have a three, two. Three, two. Very oh lucky. Gosh, yeah. I'm, like, I'm very I have a lucky. Four, four. Yeah. Oh, four, four, so many. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and just kind of like constantly go, 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 you know, yeah. it, it really, really takes a, a toll. Um, yeah. and I wish that I wish there was more than just like the daily emails about like, come do yoga on the greenway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will help. Oh, I, I can't, I can't bend over anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. This is just a, a whole tangent that we're going to edit out <laughs> of the final. Piece. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I honestly, I, it would be actually really, I would be actually really interested to hear more conversations about the, the physical toll of academia on our bodies. I mean, I mentioned I, I have back issues and, and I'm pretty sure they stem from swimming, but then sitting in a chair for so long Yep. That I started getting, I started getting sciatica in grad school. So like I got a butt pillow and that seemed to help. And then I was a visiting, I was a, a visiting assistant professor at my school for a year um, and was like applying for jobs. And then I applied to the tenure track job at my school um, and I got it, which was amazing. And I'm very thankful for that. But it was still, you know, like a couple, you know, several years of just being like, oh, what is going to happen? And like, I need to do literally everything I can to show to my department that I, that I'm the fit, the person for this job. And so yeah. don't say no to anything, say yes to everything. And this is, again, I, I'm not like blaming my department or, or my school per se. This is like academia, right? This, this is the standards that academia has set for us that we, it is expected that we devote literally everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, the, so the first year when I was on the tenure track, 
which was last academic year, which is like weird because it seems like so much time has passed. I started getting like shooting pains on the, down my hamstrings, on the back up into my calves and, and realized that there are like some, there's some discs that have been deteriorating and my hips are like off. And I knew that my hips were off from swimming, but that had been gotten a lot worse. Then I got alopecia and had like a bald spot in the back of my head for, for a while. And that is thankfully grown back, but it still is like, I mean, I kind of, I, I think it's because of stress. And I think it's that yeah. once I finally was like in a permanent position and I like relaxed that like all of these health issues came out, like my body was like holding off for so long. And so I'm like, what's going to happen once like the pandemic dust is settled, Are all these things going to come out. And, you know, it forced me to like slow down and work a lot less set up, you know, I'm only going to answer office, answer hours during these, uh, answer emails during these hours or whatever. And it's forced me to kind of start to say no and start to do all these things to try to prioritize my health. Even still, like I don't have a great work-life balance, but I think there's so many people that have these issues mm-hmm. and, and it, it may not be like solely due to academia, but it still is like the, the precarity and the work pace, the expectations. And, and, and the publishing expectations, but also the teaching expectations, students' needs that are pushed onto us mm-hmm. when they don't necessarily need to be pushed onto us because we're not trained to be mental health counselors. We're not trained to do all these things. None of us are paid enough. Yeah. Ever. Um, so it's just, it's just like amalgamation of all these issues. And I mean, I'm thankful that my chair is very understanding. And when all these health issues came out, she was like, you have to slow down. Like you have to. And I had my first review, I had my first year review meeting with my dean and my chair. And I tweeted about this the other day. And this was in, this was in February. It was a day before the harassment started, which is very bizarre when I think about it. Because like I, at the end of my meeting, I told them, I said, by the way, like, this stuff happened, you may get some emails. And then the next day was like the flood of what happened. But my Dean asked me, you know, like, do you think you can sustain this? He's like, you're doing great work, but do you think you can sustain this, this pace through and after tenure? And I was like, I don't know. No one's asked me that before. Like, I don't even know how to answer that question. And I was like, probably not. I was like, I don't have a good answer, but probably not. And he was like, we we need you to be here a long term. Like we are investing in you. We want you to be here. Like we're investing in you as a person, not just in your labor, but like as a person, we want you here, which was like a great question to ask, but, and it, it leads me to other questions of the institution that I, I didn't ask at the time that I now have um, mm-hmm. that I won't get into, but it's still, you know, it's still, and, and I like tweet these things out, not to like pat my chair on the back, even though she deserves a lot of kudos or my Dean, cause he does deserve it, but to be like, more people need to be asking these things. You know, are you, are you asking your, your, if you are a department chair, are you asking your, your faculty members, these things, are you helping them figure out how to navigate these things? What are you taking off their plate to help them <laughs> and, you know, be able to do these things? Um, Cause these are conversations that people need to be having. Like, like you said that, that, that people don't want to have, but that we need to be having. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the spirit of that, I have taken up a lot of your time this morning. <laughs> and, and so I want to, I want to wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much, Johanna, for coming on. Yeah. Andy, this is great. Thank you so much. I, and I, um, yeah, this is such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Hey, Andy Wilsack again. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's show. 
um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.